These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. I want to start off by reassuring everyone that this episode, despite having ancient aliens in the title, is not going to try and convince you that there was a nuclear war in 3000 BCE. Rather, I want to take a look at some of the pioneers of Sumerology and the genuine contributions they made to rediscovering a lost civilization. Then I want to use that as a foundation to look at the ancient aliens theorists and see where and how they went wrong, while also enjoying the fun of their modern mistellings of the ancient stories we've spent 26 episodes now getting familiar with. But before we get to the rediscovery of Sumer, we need to ask where it got lost in the first place. Having closed the book on Sumerian, we enter a period into which the common language is Akkadian, which still uses the cuneiform script and thus still requires that all literate people be educated in Sumerian-style Edubus schools. We're going to pass through the Isin Larsa period, then the original Babylonian period, then the Kassite Babylonians, then the early Assyrians, and then the main language will shift to Aramaic, the language which will remain dominant until the time of Christ. And though both Sumerian and Akkadian will still be studied, Sumerian especially will be relegated to the parts of the library for the really old texts. Then knowledge of the old ways really starts to fall away with the Bronze Age collapse. The Neo-Assyrians and the Persians, who you can hear about, by the way, on the excellent History of Persia podcast, link in the show notes today on oldeststories.net. The Persians will, of course, be beaten by the Greeks under Alexander, and here we will see that by the time of Antiochus, it comes to be believed that Sargon of Akkad was the first truly historical figure arising from a poorly understood age of myth. Now, even cuneiform starts to fade, being replaced by alphabetic languages, and thus obsoleting the need for the old Oedipus schools, and hence cutting off the main source for passing on these old traditions. The Romans and Persians would spend time fighting in a largely Hellenized Middle East for a while, until the rise of Islam proves particularly harsh on the last bastion of Sumerian culture, the pagan religion. There is no hard line here, but we can say by the period from, like, 300 BCE to 600 AD, people generally forget what little they still remember about the oldest stories, though for sure the forgetting begins even earlier than that. By the 1700s CE, biblical history was the first and last word in the origin of civilization. Which actually isn't terrible, since we get mentions of Babylonians and Assyrians, though of course, for us whose focus is east of Jerusalem, it leaves quite a lot to be desired, and rarely speaks directly to the conditions of Mesopotamia itself. But the biblical mentions are what will soon motivate adventurers and scholars to seek out the lost civilizations which interacted, however obliquely, with God's chosen people. We have two false starts prior to 1700, one by a rabbi named Benjamin of Tudela as early as 1200, who correctly identifies the city of Nineveh in Assyria, and another from an Italian adventurer, Pietro della Valle, who brought back 
curiously scored bricks from Nineveh and Ur as well, and his remarkable descriptions of the ruins of Babylon fascinated the gentry of Italy for a while, but there was no systematic follow-up just yet, rather a hodgepodge of wealthy travelers attempting with various success to make sense of Near Eastern ruins in a biblical context. Finally, in 1771, one of these travelers came upon the key needed to really get the ball rolling. Karsten Niebuhr, a Danish mathematician, was traveling through the ancient Persian city of Persopolis, where he came upon and painstakingly copied out a Rosetta Stone that predated the Rosetta Stone. That is to say, a large Persian-era royal decree written in three separate types of cuneiform, one of which being the ancient but decipherable Old Persian, with the other two being Akkadian and Sumerian. The copy was widely published in 1778, but efforts to decipher all three took over 50 years, from 1803 to 1859. It's in 1811 that the science of Assyriology is officially born, with Claudius James Rich of the East India Company going on a detour into ancient Babylon and recording two full journals worth of details and sketches that were sent back to Europe for study. He sadly dies shortly after, but his work inspired scholars around Europe and formed the core of a now massive British cuneiform collection. Around the 1860s, three men came to crack the Akkadian language at about the same time. Edward Hinks, Henry Rawlson, and Jules Oppert. Interestingly, to demonstrate that they weren't simply making it up, archaeology had its fair share of quacks and cranks in those days, they held a contest in 1857 in which a previously undiscovered tablet was handed to each in separate rooms, and they were all made to independently generate translations. The three men had only moderate success at this, but there was enough agreement to demonstrate that they weren't simply making it up and that there was a real language here that could, with effort, be deciphered. Through the middle of the 19th century, there was a parallel growth in the science of archaeology, again often motivated by a desire to prove the truth of biblical accounts, which came to unearth city after city in Mesopotamia, as well as perhaps more famously in Egypt at around the same time. As these expeditions brought in more tablets, many more of them bilingual between Akkadian and Sumerian, the decipherment of each language continued apace, with Edward Hinks being responsible for a large forward movement in the area of grammar, and in fact was the one who named the Sumerians as we call them today, reasoning from the common title of kings as King of Sumer and Akkad. Since Akkadian was already known about, surely this other, more mysterious and ancient language must be that of Sumer. Where it continued but slowly, in those early days the corpus of text, and especially bilingual text, was relatively small. Add to that the fact that the science of Assyriology itself is pretty small, with very few people working on a subject that actually covers two separate dead languages and requires a great deal of money and time to dig up more data. And most critically, the Sumerian language is famously difficult. The writing itself appears to be almost notational, 
Either that or it's simply a highly context-dependent language, rather like modern Chinese, but far worse. Cuneiform goes through multiple stages of simplification over the centuries and is used to represent multiple different underlying languages, which is made even worse by the fact that each sign can, depending on context, stand for a word or idea like a Chinese character, or it can simply phonetically mark a syllable, and each character can often have many different readings or meanings. The grammar is sparse, and even today, key parts of the grammar are hotly debated among scholars. This is not sexy work, and it is not quick work. But with nearly a hundred years of intense effort by a relative handful of dedicated and intelligent men, the stage is set for perhaps the biggest single name in Sumerology, Samuel Noah Kramer. Born in Tsarist Russia in 1897, his family fled the anti-Semitic pogroms at age seven, and he ended up in Philadelphia. As he grew, his studies of Hebrew led him into Egyptology, and then on to the related problem of the poorly understood Sumerian language. Kramer developed a reputation for being able to find tablets separated across the world in different university collections that all had versions of the same story on it, and was instrumental in compiling and deciphering many of the stories that we have looked at up to this point in the podcast. Probably what I and this podcast are most grateful for, however, is his book on the Sumerians, a bit dated now, but still the best single resource that provides a solid base for understanding everything we know about the Sumerians. I'm going to stick a link in the notes on oldeststories.net, because if this podcast has made you want to know more Sumerian stuff, then Kramer's book is definitely the next place to go. And while we're talking about it, let me also mention the similar, though much more recent book by Benjamin R. Foster, The Age of Agata, which is a similar effort, though focused on the Akkadian Empire. Both are eminently readable and are pretty much the main and only popular books on the subjects. And Kramer's work in particular has served as a foundation for modern Sumerology. Since then, tablets have steadily been discovered and translated, and archaeology has gradually moved forward as well. Still, the amount of untranslated text remains vastly greater than the amount of translated ones, and for sure there are an even greater number of texts that remain to be unearthed. I think if I was to have a second chance at life, I would go to school for Assyriology and immerse myself in uncovering and translating these old stories. I think the puzzle of putting it all together sounds fascinating. Anyway, the next major milestone is the birth of the internet. In the early 2000s, a number of universities realized the value of digitizing their collections and putting them online, creating the invaluable electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature, or ETCSL, containing transliterated and translated versions of nearly 400 of the best and most complete compositions. In addition to Kramer's book, the ETCSL website has been the main source of this show up until now. There are some other similar collections for various stages of Akkadian literature, such as the Cuneiform Digital Library Initiative, CDLI, and the Sources of Early Akkadian Literature, SEAL. But 
The later in history you go, the more widely dispersed collections seem to be. Then we come to present day. I won't be so grandiose as to put my podcast on the list of achievements in Sumerology, but it is the combined efforts of many scholars who often fade into anonymity that make this show possible, and all I can hope for is that popularizers like the eloquent Sumerian Shakespeare, whose link will also go in the show notes today, and myself will inspire others in a better position to study and support Sumerology. And if we're lucky, maybe we can even make ancient history cool again. But I have painted a picture of slow but unrelenting forward progress in the study of ancient Sumer. But honestly, that isn't completely true. It has been a journey of false starts and dead ends, such as French scholar Joseph Halavi's insistence that Sumerian wasn't actually a language, but a secret code invented by the elites of Akkad, which sparked a debate that ran through the 1870s and 80s. Additionally, the author of an early Sumerian-Akkadian vocabulary collection, Stephen Langdon, turned out later to have made a number of key errors that rendered some of his many transcriptions and translations unreliable. Many individual words and grammar points have been disputed by scholars both eminent and obscure over the decades. But these are all merely errors made by intelligent, well-intentioned people who are all trying to get at the truth, nothing that should be scorned or mocked. However, there is one self-proclaimed Sumerologist who made an error so colossal that he should receive a bit of mockery. It is to him and his hilarious beliefs that we will dedicate the rest of this episode. Zakaria Sitchin was born in Soviet Azerbaijan in 1920, his family moving to British Palestine shortly after. Sitchin was undoubtedly intelligent, becoming the executive of a shipping company and a major journalist, and teaching himself to read cuneiform in his spare time sometime in the 1940s and 50s. This alone is a pretty spectacular accomplishment. For the younger members of the audience, the internet hadn't been invented yet in the 1940s and 50s. And so this project would have required a veritable library of actual physical books and academic journals, many of which would have had to have been tracked down across academic institutions. Just finding the resources to learn would have been a challenge, but then to self-study a ferociously complex language at a time when it was relatively poorly understood shows him to be a highly intelligent autodidact. I want to emphasize this because it's easy for many of his critics to dismiss him as a quack or a moron or a fraud. Having moved to New York in the early 50s and continued his studies, he released a series of remarkable books detailing his unique interpretation of Sumerian texts, beginning in 1976 with a book entitled Twelfth Planet. The 1970s were a swirl of New Age ideas, and at this time the idea of civilizations older than the Bible were still relatively unfamiliar to the public, and his book is among the first very readable popular works outlining the ancient history of Mesopotamia. It became a bestseller and inspired a cult following, meshing with other far-out ideas of the time and helping to fuel the idea that ancient civilizations were built by aliens in the public mind. 
I've read Twelfth Planet, and I can personally attest that it is fairly well-written and enjoyable as a book. Honestly, it's hard not to recommend it to a layman interested in Mesopotamian history. It's very exciting. It's very interesting. His writing style is just gripping. It's going to get people excited for Mesopotamia. But ultimately, I can't because the errors are in places very subtle and insidious, even before he drops the bomb that Ishtar rode around in a spaceship. It begins in the opposite place as where I began, with the classical and biblical history that would have been familiar to most readers. He then asks the question, what came before that? And with gusto, he launches into the Assyrian Empire, what they were like, and how we know about them. But what came before the Assyrians, he asks. Well, next up is the Akkadians. And having fairly cogently outlined the Akkadians and their archaeology, he asks if there was anything before them, and reveals to the reader that, in fact, there was a mysterious and poorly understood, though highly advanced, civilization called Sumer. To this point, there are already a few errors cropping up. Honestly, I'm inclined to take a lot of this sympathetically, since as we've seen, mixing a word here or a fact there is easy enough. In Kramer's famous book from only 10 years previously, he discusses some of the same myths that I've covered on this show, but his interpretations are in places somewhat different, since there have been in many cases additional fragments uncovered for texts that he could only work from in part. Sumerian is complicated on its own, and 50 years ago, there was just so much less available to work with. But then we see some very strange errors. For some reason, he believes that Sumerians actually called their land Simmer. As a bit of context, the word Sumer that we have been using actually comes from the Akkadian name for the people, Shumer. The Sumerians named themselves the Sangnga literally the black-haired people, and they called their land Kiengi, or Place of Noble Lords. Why they should be more properly called Simmer is both bizarre and unexplained, but passed over as a side note. He also believes that the Sumerians burned the naturally occurring petroleum to fuel their forges, though this may honestly have been part of the academic mainstream at the time, since more modern texts do not include this detail in their discussion of Sumerian metallurgy. Like I said, Sumerology is incredibly difficult and has taken many turns over the years. I also have to criticize the extent to which he plays fast and loose with chronology and culture, jumping back and forth from Sargon II to Sargon of Akkad, despite the fact that nearly 1,700 years separate them, and mistaking Babylonian mythology for Sumerian, most egregiously using the Enuma Elish, which I have been very careful not to cover yet, as a Sumerian creation myth. We'll be covering the Enuma Elish relatively soon, but it very definitely belongs to later Babylonian periods for a number of reasons that we'll be discussing later. 
It is an outgrowth of Sumerian religion, but it is a later innovation, separate from the most ancient tradition. Similarly, he has a distressingly strong tendency to identify gods with each other across cultures. I can't blame him too much for this. There are still lots of people who love to identify gods with each other cross-culturally even today. And of course, the ancient world was in fact gleefully syncretic. And so it is really is right to say that Ishtar influenced Astareth, who in turn influenced Aphrodite in Greece. Still, even though this cross-cultural cross-pollination definitely occurs, I am much more skeptical than many people that it was actually that prevalent. And when I see Sitchin trying to equate Greek and Indian pantheons, or try and say that all water gods, even as disparate as Poseidon and Ea, are actually the same, it really bothers me. But of course, this is part of his theory. He needs for all the pagan religions, at least those in trade contact with the successors of ancient Sumer, to have originated in Sumer. Why he needs this is emblematic of where his entire theory falls apart. He creates a chain of religion, wherein the Greeks take ideas from the Phoenicians and Hittites, who take their ideas from the Assyrians, who are the religious heirs of Babylon, who took from Akkad, who took from Sumer. This isn't exactly wrong, you can't simply dismiss it out of hand, but neither is it actually correct. He fudges a lot to make his chain work and appears to misunderstand how and when the Indo-European migrations occurred. Though, to be fair, he may well be recounting the archaeological consensus of the 60s and 70s. I'm far from an expert on it myself, and I know that many parts of archaeology have moved a lot in the last 50 years. A bit less forgivably, and an example of the linguistic sleight of hand he often employs, he wants a link between the Hittites and the Hindus, and so he brings our attention to the predecessors of the Hittites, the Hurrians. He then notes that saying Hurry is phonetically quite similar to saying Hari, a meaningless statement similar to his Sumer-Simmer confusion, and Harian would sound quite similar to Aryan. So undoubtedly, which undoubtedly is his favorite word when employing these incredibly tenuous inferences, the Hurrians were actually the Indo-Europeans, or the Aryans, despite the evidence of archaeology and linguistics, which of course are not mentioned here in this book. The main problem with this is that the later gods are not actually the earlier gods. They take elements from the earlier gods sometimes, but more often the psychological drive to create gods just tends to create a similar set of gods. Water is a big deal everywhere, so of course there's a god of water, similarly with air, lightning, love, and the home. The cult of Ishtar specifically may have influenced Aphrodite, but that doesn't mean every story of Aphrodite is actually secretly a story of Ishtar. And indeed, the Greek goddess has lost nearly all the ferocity of the superior Akkadian goddess, and just becomes the goddess of being an unfaithful trophy wife. I could think of no better counterexample than the domain of water, for who could look at the brooding, wrathful Poseidon of the Greeks and compare him to the benevolent craftsman Ea that we've seen in this podcast? But for Sitchin, these are the same gods. 
and we see the same oddness in his penchant for numerology. But here too, it's hard to simply dismiss his numerological claims out of hand. Plenty of ancient societies really did see magic or universal truth in seemingly random numbers, and indeed we still have remnants of this in our own culture with the idea of lucky and unlucky numbers, like 7 and 13, though some societies would elaborate on that much more fully. He creates a list of the divine number of each god, and it's hard to dispute some of it. Ea's sacred number was 40. Why? I don't know, but there are enough mentions of it that it's hard to dispute. Enlil had 50 sacred titles, so his number is 50. Sounds silly, but so does most numerology, so it really isn't that much of a stretch. But why is Enlil's wife given the number 45? As far as I could tell, it's because it fits visually in the little chart that he makes. Why is Ishtar number 10? I don't know, why is Ishkur a dad even on the list of major gods when the far more important Inerta has no spot on the list? It all comes back to numerology. You see, Sitchin wants very badly for there to always be 12 major gods. There were, after all, 12 Olympian gods in Greek myth. He asserts that there were 12 major gods in Hindu myth as well, which I can honestly neither confirm nor deny. I don't know anything about Hindu myth. And Sitchin believes that there were 12 major gods in the Sumerian faith, which is nonsense because whenever major gods are discussed, it is always seven. The seven gods in that list sometimes changes, or is sometimes unspecified, but he needs that magic number of 12 to make his story work. Why does he need that 12? And why is his book named Twelfth Planet? Well, hold on to that for a second. Let's first ask, why is he so desperate to make the myths of disparate cultures match each other, and is willing to fudge whatever he can to make everything line up? Well, it's because he believes the Sumerian gods to have been actual, literal, historic entities, and the myths of gods and heroes are actually the stories of a culture that did not understand space travel, and so they interpreted it as best they could as the magic of the gods. I sit here and say that the myths of different people are sometimes influenced by the cultures they have contact with, but mostly are independently made up. Any similarities are due to the fact that people tend to reinvent and reuse tropes because human psychology is pretty similar around the world. I could say this because I believe that these gods are all made up, and these stories of them are fiction. Interesting fiction that can tell us a lot about human psychology and ancient culture, but nonetheless made up. If, however, you believe that the Sumerian gods are actual literal beings, and the very idea of godhood comes from ancient man's first encounters with these astronaut aliens, then you're almost obligated to hunt through the threads of similarity to find the underlying truth of the matter in much the same way that linguists hunt for similarities between disparate languages to construct the Proto-Indo-European tongue. Still, I want to be charitable to Sitchin, since he is far from the first very intelligent person to fall down a deeply strange rabbit hole on the strength of a few small mistakes and a massive ego.
Newton, after all, spent the latter half of his life engrossed in alchemy, and Einstein went to his grave rejecting quantum mechanics. But there is a certain point when a person should be able to step back and critically evaluate his conclusions. And so I'm going to finish out this episode by sharing with you the results of Sitchin's very flawed research. There are plenty more flaws than those that I've mentioned here, but the internet is full of actual experts expertly tearing apart his mistranslations, misquotations, and misunderstandings of ancient writing. If you want to go search for them. The rest of this episode is going to be utter nonsense, but I find it entertaining. Maybe the best place to start with Sitchin's wild ideas is the title of his first book, Twelfth Planet. He gets to 12 by adding up the nine planets known in the 70s, still including Pluto, then adding the sun and moon, even though they aren't really planets. But if we stop every time he says something ridiculous, we won't cover much ground. Then he adds on a mysterious 12th planet named Nibru. Nibru shows up quite commonly in Sumerian writing, though it's actually just another pronunciation of the city of Nippur. He believes that every mention of the city of Nippur is actually referencing a planet on a highly elliptical orbit that returns to the inner solar system like a comet every 3,600 years. On this imaginary planet, life evolved 75 million years before life here on Earth did. The people of Nibru called themselves Nephilim, which apparently means the people of the fiery rockets, and they were super advanced while apes were just beginning to evolve. They showed up and genetically engineered modern humanity as a slave race, then left for evolution to take its course. Humanity then made zero forward progress once the aliens left, until finally they returned in 11,000 BCE, 7400 BCE, and 3800 BCE, at each point granting humanity the technology of fire, agriculture, and finally civilization, at which point the gods decided to take up permanent residence in Sumer, the place where they had created mankind initially. The gods traveled by rocket ship and helicopter and had sci-fi ray gun weapons, so humanity couldn't fight back and just had to be the slaves of the gods who lived in their great temple palaces. And note here the pleasing resonance between this nonsense and actual Sumerian myth that really did hold the purpose of humanity to be direct service to the gods. And they believed that the person of the god literally indwelled inside their temples. Rather than search for explanations of things like personal indwelling, like maybe it's made up, or maybe the head of the temple acted ritually as the character of the god, but Sitchin takes it as literal truth. These alien spacemen in Sumerian times were ruled by a council of twelve, the major gods, and they gave the Sumerians hyper-advanced technology. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the book, the part where he exalts in just how advanced the Sumerians really were. He spins grand tales that would have 
honestly been shocking to an audience unfamiliar with the Sumerians' existence of massive construction projects, huge canal-building exercises, medical advancements, deep literature, mathematics and astronomy, industrial-scale production, legal codes, formalized judicial systems, regional trade networks, advanced metallurgy, and many more very real things that we have already looked at in this show, or in the case of mathematics, we'll look at shortly. But then his enthusiasm gets the better of him, when he also insists that the Sumerians used medical radiation therapy and could resurrect the dead, and claims a whole host of sci-fi knickknacks were in common circulation 5,000 years ago. All this, in Sitchin's view, simply appeared overnight. And indeed, if you fudge the chronology to throw a thousand years in either direction, then for sure, basically overnight. He does ask the critical question, why does civilization advance like it does in Sumer, while other places appear to remain tribal and less advanced? And why at this time in history instead of later or earlier? But since he's unable to find a compelling answer to the question, not that he seems to try very hard, he simply concludes that the people who invented civilization must have done so thanks to aliens, and anywhere the aliens didn't land, it just never got civilization, and never advanced at all on their own. Anyway, these aliens were here to mine gold from the planet Earth because Nibru had a bad atmosphere. They would force the human slaves to get the gold and bring it up to the Great Pyramids and Ziggurats, which, depending on which version you read, were either loaded up into spaceships or stargates, and sent back home. But once, in the year 130,000, seriously, this chronology is all kinds of a mess from place to place, the planet Nibru came too close to the Earth. This gravitational distortion, for some reason, caused all the ice in Antarctica to slip off of the land and fall into the ocean, creating the great biblical flood. The fellow that came to be known as Utnapishtim, or the biblical Noah, was warned and given the technology to save everyone. Why spaceship people couldn't have saved everyone themselves is unclear, but he likes to put a lot of political drama among the aliens to both limit their historical impact and honestly to tell a good story. But all good things must come to an end, and so too did the Sumerian Empire. Sitchin looks at the collapse of 2200 BCE, which a modern archaeologist would blame on climate change, and largely agree, though Sitchin would tell us that the climate change was caused by a nuclear war that blew up the spaceport on the Sinai Peninsula and caused a nuclear winter that convinced the alien god people to abandon their planet and return to Nibru. Presumably, these aliens will be returning with the next pass of the planet Nibru by Earth, which was going to be in 2003, then again predicted in 2012, then again predicted in 2017, and will surely happen any day now. The gravitational waves will destroy modern civilization, and the alien Nibruans will come and invade and reduce us back to the slavery we experienced in Egyptian and Sumerian days. It is, all in all, a silly theory, but certainly not the only silly theory out there. 
Is it really all that different from the young Earth creationists who put the creation of the world right at the year 4004 BCE, 2,000 years after the construction of the city of Eridu? It is very easy, even today, for highly intelligent people to conflate civilizations from 3000 BCE with those 1000 or even 2000 years later. I myself accidentally bought a reference book for Sargon II when I intended to get one for Sargon of Akkad, a mistake of 1700 years. Though, in my defense, the title did just say Campaigns of Sargon without specifying which one until you opened it up. This all has been a bit of a ramble, but with this we close the book on the Sumerians. We will find that very little is actually changing when we get back to the history part of our story, but before we do return to history, we're going to start introducing some of the new gods and myths that will start getting written down in the period from 2000 BCE to 1500 BCE. The Semitic-dominated Isin Larsa and Babylonian periods, also called the Middle Bronze Age, including, finally, the famous Enuma Elish. But before we do even that much, this show is going to take a little break. Not a break from episodes, I love to hear myself talk way too much for that, but a little break from the Mesopotamian narrative. At about this same time in human history, another people is on the move. A people who I'm fortunate enough to have direct access to, the Chamorros of the Marianas Islands. And so, next episode is going to be a special interlude, looking at the oral history and myth of the native peoples of Saipan. If this doesn't interest you, we will be returning to Mesopotamia after that, but please consider joining me next time as we create the world from a different perspective, skip through thousands of years of history, and consider how a completely different environment shapes the same human clay into somewhat different forms. Thank you for listening. <laughs>